1: Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. For this episode, we have two returning guests, historians Randy Roberts and Johnny Smith. They are the co-authors of a compelling new book on two of the most fascinating figures in American history of the early 1960s. Their book is titled Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, published by Basic Books in 2016. In its first weeks of release, this book has earned praise from reviewers, and it is a must-read for those who are interested not only in the two main subjects, but also in the broader history of civil rights in America and the history of boxing, sports, and politics. Here's our interview. On the line from Atlanta, where he teaches at Georgia Tech, is Johnny Smith. Johnny, welcome to New Books and Sports.
2: Thanks for having me, Bruce. Excited to talk to you.
1: And we also have Randy Roberts, who is Distinguished Professor of History at Purdue University. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bruce. It's good to be here. And uh, Randy, so it's been a while uh, since you've been a guest on the podcast. We spoke about boy four years back about your biography of of Joe Lewis, and then again about your book on the great Army football teams of the of the nineteen forties. And and in the meantime, since your last appearance, you also had another book on Bear Bryant and Alabama football. Correct? Yeah, you missed it. I felt lonely. Well, you know what? That would really—I'm sorry, Randy. It would really be a stretch for me to do a, to do an episode on Alabama football. I would really have to swallow hard to uh, to do that. Oh, come on! You gotta love the Tide. Oh man. Okay. Uh, and so, Johnny, you were on two years ago. We talked about your book on uh, uh, John Wooden and the UCLA basketball teams of the '60s and '70s. And uh, at that time, when I asked you at the end of the interview, uh, what was your your next project, you mentioned this book on Muhammad Ali. So this has been in the work for how long? Uh, at least two years then?
2: Yeah, we had discussed the idea of writing a biography um, when I was finishing up the UCLA book. And one of the things that Randy and I kept returning to was that <laughs> You know, writing a biography of Ali would be interesting, but no one had really explored how Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali, and we wanted to go back and look at his life in depth in the period between 1962 and 1965, the period of time that framed his relationship with Malcolm X, and we, we were really glad that
1: we did that. So you were starting out with this book project, you were, you were deliberate in, in terms of setting the goal of writing a different kind of, of Muhammad Ali book, because there are plenty of books. Ali books.
0: Well, you know, we started off initially thinking that we would do a full biography because. There's really not a full, heavily researched, academic, if you want to call it academic, academic slash, you know, well-written biography of Muhammad Ali. Still the best biography is probably Tom Hauser's oral biography, which is, you know, as an oral biography, it's just spectacular. But it's not the same thing that historians would do. So we thought about that. But the more, as Johnny said, the more we started doing research, we started to feel like You know, this is the most interesting period. This is a period between the Olympics and him winning the title, and particularly then the assassination of Malcolm X. This is when
1: it all happens. This is who we know today, Muhammad Ali, was formed. And, Randy, I'll ask you, so you've written biographies of, of Joe Lewis, uh, as we mentioned, uh, Jack Dempsey, Jack Johnson, and, and so these are, th- are three iconic heavyweight champions. Were, were you always thinking throughout your career that you'd like to do a book about Ali, or were you, were you wary of Ali as a subject? I was always
0: thinking about it, particularly if you look at the three kind of great black iconic champions of the 20th century Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, and Muhammad Ali. I'd always thought about Muhammad Ali, and I'm a a few years older than Johnny, and so I actually lived through the age of Muhammad Ali. You know, everybody talks about their heavyweight champion. You know, people from the 20s talked about Jack Dempsey, or people from the 30s and the 40s talked about Joe Lewis well I'm a product of the 60s and 70s and and, and my heavyweight champion uh, in 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 all ways was always Muhammad Ali I don't know Johnny who's your heavyweight champion Mike Tyson
2: <laughs> I'm not claiming Mike Tyson but you know the interesting thing is unlike Randy I didn't grow up following boxing the way that he did and for me I came to Muhammad Ali going back to when I was an undergraduate. And I took a uh, research seminar course at Michigan State, and we had to write a paper in African American history, and I was really interested in sports. I thought, you know, I'd like to learn more about Muhammad Ali. He seems fascinating. And so, going back to that time, I really came to history through sports and my interest in uh, Muhammad Ali. And so, I was really excited to kind of return to this idea of how did Cassius Clay become Muhammad Ali. And I think one of the things that's fascinating about Ali is that this is a man. Who didn't just reflect his times during the 1960s, but he shaped debates about race, religion, the Vietnam War, and so he was at the center of all of these political conversations. And he was a controversial figure. And you know, we wanted to explore how did that happen?
0: Yeah, and, and if I can just add something to that, you know, I that's the great thing about heavyweight champions. What Johnny said is absolutely true for Muhammad Ali, that he shaped a debate. Well, the same thing is true for Joe Lewis, that he shaped a debate. Uh, the same thing is true with Jack Johnson, that he shaped his debate. These these heavyweight champions somehow become kind of lightning rods for American society. What uh, was it, M- M- uh, Eldridge Cleaver one time said that the, well, boxing is a two-fisted testing ground of masculinity in America. And the heavyweight champion, as a symbol, is the real Mr. America. and. And I think that both Johnny and I probably believe this. That this is this is accurate and somehow they seem to incorporate the dynamics. The energy
1: of a period. Mm-hmm. Johnny, let me ask you because I was actually thinking of this question as as Randy said he's a little older than you and and he, you know, many of these events are in in his memory. Uh, did you have instances as you were writing the book and researching where Randy said, "No, I remember it was like this," and and uh, and you had to come back, "No, this is what we're finding in the sources." Was there a, a how do you say a tension between history and memory in the in the writing of this book?
2: Uh, never, actually. I think to Randy's credit, uh, he came at this subject like he would any other subject, whether he lived through it or not. I think the the really fun part of this book was the collaboration. And so, you know, one of the things that Randy and I did is we went on every research trip together. We outlined the chapters together. We had conversations about, you know, how we were going to organize the chapters, how we were going to um, write the transitions, and we had duplic- duplicate duplicate copies of every single source. We're talking about thousands of pages of material, FBI files, Malcolm X's papers, the papers of Alex Haley, uh, the Nation of Islam's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, and dozens of other newspapers as well, especially the papers in New York where Malcolm and young Cassius Clay spent so much time together. And so we were always you know, pulling out the same source and looking at them together, even if we weren't in the same room. We could talk about these things over the phone, and, and that was exciting. That was fun. That's what I think really uh, energized the both of us, is that when we would each get excited about something, looking at a source or having a conversation about how to construct a storyline, uh, we were doing it by looking
0: at the same sources. The only difference is Johnny could locate the sources way faster than
1: <laughs> I could locate the sources. <laughs> and, I, and I will add, so after Johnny talks about this this real collaborative work, that Johnny, you were once uh, Randy's student.
2: That's right. I was. You know, I remember when uh, I was still at Purdue, uh, we were always talking about what would make a really good biography and that's when we started the Ali conversation oh, as Randy mentioned before the fact that there wasn't a really serious thorough biography of Ali was just stunning to us and so you know even then we were talking about this gap in the literature and um, you know so the seeds of this project went back to the time when when we were uh, together at Purdue but then after I left and I was finishing up the UCLA book you know we kept coming back to this idea of writing about Ali.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, with all my graduate students, and Johnny in particular, but although
1: I've had some really spectacular Yeah, you've had some graduate. Great, I've, students. I've, I've interviewed I, a bunch of your students, so yeah, you've had yeah, some I, great I don't want to
0: say Johnny in particular, although Johnny's spectacular, but so is Aaron Garzuzzi and so is David Wilkie, so are, you know, and I could go on. But, um, you know, Johnny and I particularly would talk a lot about books and I do this with all graduate students. So and, and it's just it's because of what we do, it's who we are, it's it's the profession we're in. Okay, what would be a good book? And and from the very beginning, I think Johnny would probably agree with this, uh, you know, I try to get graduate students to think about writing books. Not writing a dissertation, not writing papers, but writing books and books that other people would like to read. Uh Aaron Gazzucci in one time um he commented and, and he, he said it publicly and I I, I didn't even remember the, con- the conversation but his first book was on Sidney Poitier and he came to me one time and he said you know that would make a good book and he gave some instances why it would make a good book and I said yeah it would why don't you write it and, and and it was the first time he said that he ever thought that yeah why don't I write it but uh, I th- I'm sure Johnny had the same experience uh, and, and you know, for some reason Johnny and I just talked talked a whole lot more, I think, than I talked with other graduate students.
2: Randy was a great mentor. Without a doubt, um, going to Purdue was the best decision I could have made for my career because I was learning from someone who did what I wanted to do. And so it was. I benefited in all sorts of ways of learning about how to conduct research, how to how to write a book, um, and I think, you know, with my first book on the UCLA dynasty and John Wooden and the politics of the 60s and 70s, um, a, a colleague had once said to me, you know, you can see Randy's imprint on the Sons of Westwood, and I took it yeah. as a compliment because it meant that I absorbed uh, a lot of what he had taught me.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask about that, then. Uh, you've both written written biographies before, so, Johnny, your, your book about uh, UCL baske- UCLA basketball really has John Wooden's life at, at its center, so you've done biographies. Biographical research what new challenges did you find in in writing about these two subjects who are as as well known and as well studied as Ali and Malcolm X
2: well, I think with this ch- this book, it was challenging in the sense because I think there are myths about their relationship. You know, if you read Manning Marable's biography of Malcolm X, uh, Cassius Clay is kind of a transitory figure in Malcolm's life. And what we wanted to show, or what the sources showed, is that you know Cassius Clay was more important to Malcolm X at a moment in which Malcolm's life is in danger, at a moment in which Malcolm is in exile from the nation of Islam. He's been suspended by the nation's leader, Elijah Muhammad, and he's not sure what the future holds. And so he attaches himself to Cassius Clay at a crucial point point in his life and and we knew that this was something that hadn't been shared before and so we were excited about the opportunity to say something new about Malcolm's relationship with Clay. On the flip side, we also thought that no one had really explored in depth the impact that Malcolm had on the political attitudes and the religious uh, beliefs that Cassius Clay had and how he evolved into the man who'd become Muhammad Ali. And so you know, we we really felt that our sources allowed us to go in a direction that no
0: other biographer or no other writer had uh, to date. You know, it was uh, it was interesting writing this book because one of the books we had to come to terms with is the autobiography of Malcolm X, which presents all kinds of problematic issues. I mean, to begin with, it is an absolutely brilliant riveting autobiography, okay? I think anybody who's read it would agree with that. However, it's not really an autobiography. I mean, it's it's not a book that Malcolm X wrote. Malcolm X told his story to Alex Haley, and Alex Haley wrote the book. And after Malcolm died, the book was changed a little bit in shape, and, and, and it and, and and there was an agenda by Alex Haley. He had an agenda. And so, you know, if you think about dealing with that book as a historian, and that book becomes very important to us, if you think about that book is it's it's a autobiography written by somebody else other than who's purportedly by, who has a particular agenda and the main person has, has already died. So I mean, I think it raises some really interesting historical questions. Do you agree, Johnny? Absolutely.
2: I mean, if you read um, David Remnick's book and other books that have uh, explored Muhammad Ali and Malcolm's relationship, they all rely on the autobiography. And there's some parts of the autobiography that can be easily verified, that can be confirmed. But as Randy suggests, there are some other parts that raise questions that – you can see in the epilogue of the autobiography, Autobiography, for instance, Alex Haley gets some of his um, chronology wrong, he makes some mistakes, and I. it's pretty clear that he stretches the truth in some instances as well, which we wrote about. Um, and so that was probably, as Randy said, the source that we had to confront in terms of the story, because what's happened is, is that other writers have used the autobiography and told and retold the same stories using the autobiography. Autobiography, and that's where the mismaking around the relationship between Clay and Malcolm really took shape.
1: Uh, Randy, I want to uh, ask you a question about uh, uh, source material. And uh, I remember when we spoke about uh, your Joe Lewis book, you noted that there were very few sources... Uh, with joe lewis's recorded words whether something he wrote himself or others uh writing down what he had said so how was it to go from writing a biography of a person whose voice appeared only rarely in the book to going to ali who uh never stopped talking What
0: and malcolm x and malcolm x it's it, it night and day uh, one of the things and Johnny was so g- good at collecting these things is you know we just using YouTube and other sources I mean we were able to get so many speeches so many interviews and so their voices his voice Muhammad Ali Malcolm X cassius clay their voices are became part of my daily life I you know I could hear it in my sleep and listening to the voice what we were able to ask able to find is suddenly we could hear the changes in Cassius Clay's voice. Suddenly oh, his words that he was picking are really Malcolm's words, and the expressions that he uses are from Malcolm, and we had heard him before. We had heard Malcolm say this or this sentence or that sentence, and we can hear how Cassius Clay kind of almost the, the voice of Malcolm inhabits him. And and so for that reason, it, it was a study
1: that was, was utterly fascinating. So listening to his, his audible voice, listening to a recording as opposed to seeing the words in in print. I always think it's better because you can hear how he emphasizes uh, the words. You can, hear, you, you can hear how he's
0: is it, it, what, what he's trying. Is he serious? Is he saying in a mocking way? Yeah. it's it's To listen to a person's voice is always better than reading it on a flat page. It's, it, it comes to life and particularly the voices of Cassius Clay, Mohammed Ali and Malcolm X I think mean, because they were masters at using their voice and, and throwing their voice and expressing
1: sarcasm or rage or what have you uh, let me ask so Johnny you mentioned earlier that that uh, you both brought some new sources uh, into this, this study of Ali and Malcolm X and and you both mentioned that uh, sources such as the autobiography of Malcolm X have, have been used extensively and in some ways uh, um, uh, I don't want to say misuse, but that uh, subsequent authors have picked up on what Alex Haley put into the book, uh, which may or may not be accurate, and then have continued with those stories. So, let me ask: What other sources did you did you bring to to the study to uh, to say bracket the the more familiar sources like Alex Haley's book?
2: Well, what was essential to begin with was to create. A day by day chronology of the movements of Cassius Clay and Malcolm X. And this was important because for much of the relationship, from the time they met in nineteen sixty two until the Sonny Liston fight against Clay in Miami in February of sixty four, the relationship was clandestine. You know, the the public didn't grasp or know that they were meeting together in private. So one of the things we wanted to establish was when were they in the same place at the same time? So we began by collecting newspaper material, and we put this chronology together that put Malcolm in, in this city and Clay in this city, and oh, okay, then they were together in this city at this date. And so the newspaper coverage day by day. And so that was the first key source in helping us recreate the chronology and the movement of both men. Then what we did is once we had the chronology pretty much set, we looked at Malcolm's FBI files and the FBI files of other uh, figures in the Nation of Islam because that then gave us an insider's view of what was happening inside Malcolm's Mosque in Harlem, inside the nation's headquarters in Chicago, and it helped us read the movements of Malcolm and Clay in a way that no other historian or biographer has in the past. And that was that was critical because now when you're reading a re- partially redacted transcript of a phone call, conversation. We knew clearly they were referencing Malcolm or Clay in a specific instance. And so it it raised all sorts of uh, new evidence about what was happening between them in private and how the FBI was tracking their movements. And then the the other source I talk about beyond just interviews and and, uh, videos and and speeches that Randy referenced earlier was In the spring of 1964, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X both went on a trip to Africa and the Middle East. They they did not go together, as many people know. Uh, They would have their their last confrontation, their last meeting in Accra, Ghana in May of 1964. But Randy and I explored State Department records that no one had looked at. And this was especially important for understanding how Muhammad Ali had become this symbol of uh, pan-Africanism, black nationalism anti-American defiance, and for the first time, the government sees him as a threat to its foreign policy goals in that region of the world.
0: Johnny has heard me say this before. I still think there's some records about what took place in Ghana that we never could find. We looked we looked for these things, and, and, and I know they're there. I know someplace. I don't know what happened to them, but there should be some good records out there. The other thing is, there was a guy by the name of Jack Olson, Madam who wrote a book uh, early on in the mid-60s about Muhammad Ali and he, it was came out as a series of articles first in Sports Illustrated. Well, he had done a significant amount of interviews in that 65-66 period, so very close to the period that we studied. Uh, interviews with Muhammad Ali, with, with uh, uh, his father, his mother, his uh, people in his entourage. Uh, and, and we were able to find those interviews Interviews. They were have been sent, deposited in a library, and they were helpful because we were able to get. It was almost as if we could go back and interview. Cash is clicked Muhammad Ali by this time. Muhammad Ali and the figures around him, at that time, instead of interviewing him today, 50 years, 60 years later, whatever it is, uh, 40 years later, we were able to to get close to him at the moment
1: that we were writing about. And I found that was really helpful. Uh, Johnny, so on the on this t- topic that you mentioned, or this this uh, approach you took of plotting out uh, Ali's and, and Mal- Malcolm X's activities day by day, uh, you discuss this in the in the preface to the book, and and you don't say this explicitly, but but something that comes out of the preface is this idea that in order to get the broad interpretive arc correct in looking at these two people and their relationship in this period, you have to excavate the details and get those correct is is that the approach that you were taking
2: yeah i mean you there was a real challenge. We have to remember that Malcolm X is always on the move. You know, he was preaching out of his mosque in Harlem, but by 1962, 1963, he is traveling to Detroit, to Chicago, um, Philadelphia. He's visiting other mosques, Washington, DC. He's giving speeches. He's going on college campuses and debating Baird Rustin and other civil rights leaders. Um, he's appearing on television and radio shows. And so he's always on the move. And what What's happening is that there's a a friction that's developing inside the nation of Islam that becomes very important in understanding the relationship between Cassius Clay and Malcolm X. What happens is is that... By 1963, Malcolm X is having this crisis of faith. He learned that Elijah Muhammad uh, has been carrying on these extramarital affairs, and he has had children out of wedlock. And so now Malcolm is questioning this idea that Elijah Muhammad is, in fact, the messenger of Allah. And so his, his whole world has been shattered. The other thing that's happening is that Elijah Muhammad had consistently told Malcolm to stand down to um, not talk about politics as much as Malcolm wanted to. And Malcolm's frustration was that he was being criticized by many uh, African-Americans because he would talk about how the Nation of Islam was going to lead a movement that would retaliate against whites, that would use um, whatever means were necessary to defend black communities, and yet Malcolm is seeing that the Nation of Islam, under Elijah's leadership, is standing on the sidelines. And Malcolm is a man of action. His impulse is to do something to be confrontational. So he has this religious crisis. He has this political uh, change where he is challenging Elijah's authority because he's speaking out and defying Elijah's orders. And so my point is, is that increasingly, Malcolm is moving away from the nation of Islam. And ultimately, after... Malcolm X is suspended in uh, November of 1963, Um, he realizes his future may not be with the Nation of Islam. And yet he also recognizes at that same time that Cassius Clay, on the verge of fighting against Sonny Liston for the heavyweight championship, may be exactly what he needs in his life to
0: build a new movement. I think there's so much he was saying there. It's it's interesting. And one of the Issues that Johnny and I talked about—oh God, I can't—I can't remember how many times we talked about it—is what was on Malcolm's mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, When was when did he realize that there was going to be no going back to Elijah Muhammad? Uh, Because we'll see signs of it. That you know clearly he's ready to break. Clearly he's ready to get uh, Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali to go with him. Okay, he's going to form his new organization. But then we'll see the next. there's a sign that he's holding out hope that maybe it won't be. He would, won't have to break with Elijah Muhammad, and so he kind of he goes back and forth. Um, I don't know if Johnny would agree, but there's probably never a moment that we could absolutely say, "Aha! Here is the time that he finally made up his mind." And to me, that becomes a very human story. It, this is how we all are. You know, we go back and forth. It's not cut and dry. So. Sometimes historians make make biographies seem so so certain. Okay, yeah, the person is sure he's moving this way, he turns this way. In point of fact, we waffle all the time. <laughs>
1: And that was something striking in those chapters of the book, where you were uh, showing Malcolm X's, and and as you said, almost on a daily level, is how he was debating back and forth what he was what he was going to do. And at the same time, what was happening with with Cassius Clay? Was he uh, uh, was he also being drawn back and forth between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, or was he moving steadily in one direction? That's interesting. Um... In some ways,
0: we can see the agony of Malcolm X, a a person who I I have no question loved Elijah Muhammad, did not want to break with Elijah Muhammad. Uh, Elijah Muhammad was the reason that he got out of prison, that he became famous, that that he found the cause. I mean, this is a person he deeply reveres, and so we can see the agony with Muhammad Ali, he can't say it. Okay? I, I mean, it's, it's it looks as if he's going directly with with uh, Malcolm. It, we can see it all along, and then all of a sudden, he makes the decision and he goes with Elijah. So that going back and forth isn't there with him. The soul searching. I never really saw, and maybe Johnny could change this for me, but I don't know if we ever really saw the same kind of soul searching that Malcolm went through.
2: I think Randy's right, I mean, it was clearly visible um, in Malcolm's actions that he was going back and forth about, okay, I've been suspended from the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad is testing me. Uh, At first he thinks when this suspension happens on December 1st, 1963, oh, you know, the suspension will be lifted, he's just trying to demonstrate his authority here, I'll be back in the Nation of Islam. But, you know, December passes, January goes on, it's February, and Elijah has not lifted the suspension. And as we get closer to the fight in um, in Miami between Clay and Liston, that's when Malcolm starts to have to have some doubts about his future. And he, he knows, what he does know, is that whether he returns to the Nation of Islam or he is permanently dismissed from the movement, he wants Cassius Clay in his world. And he also knows that Elijah Muhammad is going to want Cassius Clay the new heavyweight champion in his world. So Malcolm recognizes that while he's got one foot in the Nation of Islam and one foot out the door, he wants to hold on to Cassius Clay. But Cassius because Cassius Clay is going to become valuable. Cassius Clay is exactly what Elijah and Malcolm wanted to help build their movements. He was the kind of person who could draw other young, frustrated black men into a movement. He could be someone that. They could build uh, uh, thousands of followers around. And so Cassius Clay's value is becoming significantly greater to Malcolm as he's thinking about a life without the Nation of Islam.
0: And the interesting thing is, is after Cassius Clay wins the heavyweight title, he defeats Sonny Liston. The night that he defeats him afterwards he goes to a party and he 's with Malcolm and Malcolm is happy he 's calling friends back in in Harlem and New York. you know look what my little brother did, look what the cha- you know the new champion, and he can see i mean he is tied to. Cassius Clay. I mean, they're, they're they're joined at the hip, and then he leaves. He goes out of the room for a little time, and Cassius Clay turns to Jimmy Brown, the great football player, and says, "You know, I don't think I'll be able to stay with Malcolm. You know, I'm going to have to go with Elijah Muhammad." And it's like, what? Where does that come from? Uh, so it, it becomes a really interesting story, uh, and, and we go back again. To the idea of who is Cassius Clay, and we talk about the different faces of Cassius Clay. You know, we talk about you know the Cassius Clay of the Olympic Games, Cassius Marcellus Clay, and the Louisville Lip, and Cassius X, and finally Muhammad Ali. But trying to figure out exactly who he is is a pretty difficult,
1: a pretty difficult chore. Yeah, yeah. So, and what struck me, so you, you write about these different masks that Cassius Clay puts on in the in the early 60s Uh, but what also struck me is that even though even though he was convincing as he took up these different masks he also shows himself i don't know the word to use as as innocent or or easily led is is that a correct view of him during these times he's young he's certainly young and he's he's pulled in different directions
2: well, I think he recognizes the more time he spends with the Nation of Islam, certainly by 1962, by the spring of 1962. He knows he cannot divulge to the public his involvement with the Nation of Islam. He's aware. He's certainly conscious of the idea that the Nation of Islam is known as a hate cult, as a as a violent sect. Malcolm X is the most hated black man in America, who is he's looked at as a demagogue. Um, so Cassius is... Is shrewd. He knows he can't share his relationship with the ministers in the Nation of Islam. At the same time, he tells reporters that he reads his Bible while he's you know in private, going to these meetings and learning about Islam. Um, And so, you know, Cassius Clay. You know, he is presenting himself one way in public, and yet at the same time, when he's in these meetings in the Nation of Islam's mosques, um, he presents himself another way. And I think between 62 and 1964, he is conflicted in some ways. You know, he was raised in the church. His mother had taken him to the Baptist church, and... What happens when he goes to the meetings of the Nation of Islam, though, is he questions Christianity, and he questions what he's learned in the church, and what the Muslim ministers are telling him seems to make more sense to him about how the white man's heaven is a black man's hell. That is something that is concrete for him when he looks around America and sees how white
0: people are living and how the majority of black people are living. Let me make an analogy with, um, with Cassius Clay. He loved magic, Again, you know, mm-hmm. all of his life. Yep, he loved yep. magic, and he would do tricks. And I, you know, I, I was actually with Cassius Clay a few times, and I saw him do this. I saw him do tricks for people, and he had a few tricks, you know, prop type of things he would do all the time. Well, the key to magic is you do the trick once, and boom. It's magic. You don't do it again. You don't. You don't repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and let people, you know, closely scrutinize you to figure out what the trick is. Cash's Clay, Muhammad Ali, would do that. He would do the trick and then he would do it over and he would do it over and it would be and do it over. It was almost as if he was trying to fool you, to trick you, that it was magic. But then he wanted you to see what the truth was. Uh, and this is the way he lived his life. Um, you know, he would, he was he was disguising what he was doing. He wasn't saying he was joining the nation of Islam. He was stay, he was keeping a, a, an arm's length away from the nation. But yet, he would give the nations the, the, the pattern, the, the, the speech, the you know, the, the ideology would all come from, him. he would say to somebody, oh, you, you know, I wonder if there's spaceships up, up there in the sky, you know, referring to a nation of Islam belief. And so he's, he's this odd character of hiding his true feelings, but
1: yet trying to reveal his true feelings. And it, it, it makes him a really interesting character to study. So let me ask you, in, in just talking about Malcolm X and, and Cassius Clay, uh, we get something of a different interpretation just from what you two have, have said, yet in the book, in the preface to the book, you write that your two subjects, Ali and Malcolm X, share the same DNA. What what do you mean by that?
2: I think what we're talking about there is is the origins of their frustration.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, Malcolm's father... Uh, was a Garveyite, a black nationalist, and uh, Malcolm, when he was a little boy, heard his father, you know, talking about uh, white supremacy and this outrage. Cassius Clay grows up in a household where his father also is outraged by the fact that the white man holds them down. And so Cassius Clay hears this message over and over again from his father that don't trust the white man. The white man is dangerous. You know, Malcolm's father said the same thing in his household. And so one of the things that we talk about is, is that the incredible influence their fathers had on both of these young men, that both of them saw their fathers um, suffer, endure pain from discrimination, from racism in America. and And so there's a bond there between Clay and Malcolm, that they both saw the world through the same lens. They both saw the ways in which whites um, brutalized black Americans and treated them as second-class citizens. And so, you know, as much as Cassius Clay could come off as sweet and funny and innocent, the fact is, is that the more he spends time with the ministers in the Nation of Islam, he begins to become... He begins to reveal, I should say, the anger that has been buried beneath the surface, the frustration. And the reality is is that after he breaks with Malcolm X, we see it more and more. He's more vengeful. He's more spiteful. He's, he's even ugly in the way that he talks about... Other black folks, you know, he calls Floyd Patterson an Uncle Tom, and he doesn't hold back in any way. And, you know, that's the way that Malcolm had once spoke before uh, he had gone to Mecca. You know, Malcolm would criticize Martin Luther King and call him an Uncle Tom. And so
0: these are two guys who share the same frustration and anger. And they're also two that express themselves the same way. They're both incredibly verbal. You know, they're fighters. Uh, they're art- they're articulate. I mean, there's so much in common between the two, and they'll ultimately
1: follow the same path. They just don't do it exactly the same time. Johnny, that was striking what you said about uh, the, the portrait that we get or the picture that we get of uh, Ali after his break with Malcolm X. As, as your book closes, the picture that we get of, of Ali is not, it's, it's definitely not the conventional notion of Muhammad Ali that, that we have today in American culture. You, you have a, a picture of a very different man after Malcolm X's death.
2: It's one that that we often forget, and Randy and I thought that it was important to show how Ollie responds in this moment when Malcolm has been murdered in front of his wife and children, and Ollie has nothing to say about how it's incredibly sad, how he's uh, grieving this loss. And the irony is, yes, yesterday or was yesterday April fourth, or um, the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And I saw someone tweet out a newspaper clipping of how, when Martin Luther King was killed, Muhammad Ali didn't want to say a whole lot. He told the reporters because he didn't want anyone to think that he was making some kind of political statement about his own situation with Vietnam, but that. You know Martin Luther King was a great man, and that he will be missed, and that it was a sad day. You'd never heard anything like that in 1965 when Malcolm X was killed, and Malcolm
0: was far closer to Ali than Martin Luther King was. Yeah, and and a year before, Ali had been was playing with Malcolm's children in Miami, and you know bouncing them on his knee. uh, You know, but he but he says nothing. Yeah, it's
1: an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon. I want to ask about the the name Muhammad Ali. Uh, you you point to that uh, um, Cassius Clay adopting the name Muhammad Ali as as really the point at which he breaks from from Malcolm X.
0: Yeah, he, he was given the name by Elijah Muhammad, and so by accepting the name, you know, he's accepting Elijah Muhammad. You know, he will be Muhammad Ali. Elijah says, as long as he follows Elijah Muhammad, because it's coming with the grace of Elijah Muhammad.
2: Accepting that name was significant within the nation of Islam. This was accepting what the uh, black Muslims referred to as your original name. So it was. this was the time in which Cassius Clay rejects his quote-unquote slave name. The ministers in the Nation of Islam taught their followers that your surname is just the the name of a white man who owned your ancestors. And so the X that Malcolm had and the other uh, uh, followers of Elijah Muhammad Muhammad had, it represented a rejection of a heritage tied to slavery, tied to bondage. And then what would happen is, at some point, and it was rare actually, uh, Elijah Muhammad would replace place your x with a original name. And so you would get a a name like Shabazz or Muhammad or Ali. And this was considered quite an honor. And at first, uh, Cassius Clay was a little uncomfortable with the idea of accepting a new name for, I think, two reasons. One, he loved his original name. He loved the name Cassius Marcellus Clay. He would go on and on about how it was such a beautiful name. But on another level, he was a little confused by this because there were members in the nation of Islam who never received their original name name, and so he wasn't sure that he deserved it. But this was a political move. Elijah Muhammad knew that if he renamed Cassius Clay, gave him the name Muhammad Ali, it would essentially compel the champ to make a decision, and if he accepted this new name, it would cement Elijah's hold on him, and it meant, too, that when Cassius Clay accepted the name Muhammad Ali... Being Muhammad Ali meant being a loyal disciple of Elijah Muhammad. It was no longer possible for him to entertain the idea of being
1: friends with Malcolm X, which is exactly what Elijah wanted. I do want to ask about boxing, uh, since since this is a book about Muhammad Ali, and, and Randy, you are a historian of boxing, and uh, one of the, the points that you make in the early chapters is uh, that Cassius Clay saves boxing, that that boxing was really in a, in a sorry state in the early 1960s before he enters the scene.
0: Yes, uh, there were boxing was assailed from the outside and from the inside, and this is a period of the Keith Offer Committee hearings and uh, into professional boxing and the corruption in professional boxing. So there was a, a sense that fights were fixed. Certainly, the Keith Offer hearings showed. Some fights were fixed, particularly the Jake LaMotta, uh, Billy Fox fight. And so there's here's a fixed fight. This is also the time of the Emil Griffith and Benny Kid paret fight, when Benny Kid paret died, when Emil Griffith uh, you know, knocked him out and killed him in the ring. And shortly a year later, the same thing with Sugar Romero and uh, Davy Moore a championship fight, where Davy Moore, the champion, was killed in the ring. So America was looking at at boxing as it's it's kind of brutal. It's corrupt it's thuggish the, the, the promoters are, are crooked the, the, the trainers and managers are exploiting uh, poor, mostly increasingly black fighters uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's a bad time and then suddenly the new heavyweight champion in 1962 becomes Sonny Liston who represents all of the evils and nefarious activities of boxing Sonny Liston he had spent time in prison, he had and a leg breaker for the mob. He had. Uh, he, he he was managed. He had his undercover managers were all tied into the corrupt uh, dealings of boxing. And so many Americans were questioning. And not only Americans, Europeans as well. You know, is, it, is 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 boxing a relic of our barbaric past? Is it time to get rid of boxing? So suddenly now, at this moment when boxing is at a low ebb, you get this new fighter, uh, Cassius Marcellus Clay. He's managed by a, a Lily White, above-the-board management team, the Louisville management team. He was an Olympic champion. He represented his country. He's just gorgeous looking. He's articulate. He is—he's really the exact opposite of Sonny Liston. People feel, you know, he's exciting. He's interesting. He's controversial. Uh, he can't beat Liston, of course, but um, you know, so, but he, he he revives interest at it. Time when boxing is dying, television is leaving bo- boxing. They're they're canceling weekly fights. Suddenly, when when Cassius fights, the crowds turn out. You know they they want to see him. The Doug Jones fight, the Henry Cooper fight in in London, uh, all these kind of revive. It's it's
1: it's the springtime
0: of boxing.
1: Well, we're almost out of time, so I want to uh, uh, finish up by asking uh, something that you write in the preface to the book, is uh, that your, your book is an attempt, uh, as you write, quote, to rescue a story that's fallen into the hands of, of hagiographers. And, and I want to ask you both, how does, how does this book rescue the story of uh, Ali and Malcolm X from hagiographers?
0: You know, one thing, if I can say, and it goes back to what you were talking to Johnny about before, you know, the question to ask is, did Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, did he change that much or did America change that much? You know, partly the way we see him today and the way we saw, see the arc of his career, Really has to do with his stand in Vietnam, which was unpopular when he took it, when he opposed the Vietnam War and refused to be inducted. But as Vietnam becomes America's bete noir, uh, suddenly. We we look at cash, uh, Muhammad Ali and we say you know here was here was a prophet this is what we should have done this is this was the movement of America so in a sense the politics of America made America at least liberal America embrace embrace Muhammad Ali it's it's not that he changed radically. Although later, I think he does change as the nation of Islam changes, as Wallace Mohammed adopts a more orthodox position.
2: And I think the other thing, building on everything Rainey just said, which I totally agree with, is that in our recent memory, in the last 20 years, there's been... Revived interest in Muhammad Ali, but in portraying him as a hero, and that starts with the Olympics in 1996 in Atlanta, mm-hmm. when Mal—excuse me—when Muhammad Ali is lighting the cauldron. He's trembling, suffering from Parkinson's. Uh, there's a silence. You know, we we look at him, and people see him in heroic terms, battling this disease, and. In that silence, though, corporate sponsors, movie makers, writers, ESPN, they have crafted an image of Ali as a goodwill ambassador, a hero of all social causes, a man of peace, which he may be some of those things today. However, those same media um, producers, they have reframed, the Ali of the 1960s, as a hero then. But the reality is, and I think our book shows this, uh, Ali was not a unifying force of peace and goodwill in the 1960s. He was divisive. He was controversial. He was hated by many Americans. Um, And so what we wanted to do with our book is return to the man in his times, in his moment, and show how he evolved from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali and to introduce readers to a man who was not considered an all-American hero. Mm -hmm.
1: And I'll ask, Randy had mentioned at the top of the interview, he had thought of, uh, you both had thought of doing a complete biography of Ali. Would you uh, consider continuing the story forward from this point? In some way, not as a full biography, though, but uh, you
0: know, be, there's other points in his life and his conflicts with Joe Frazier, and there's other I think really interesting parts uh, that that would be interesting to look at, but not as a not as a full life, I don't think.
2: Yeah, I agree. I, I wouldn't want to do uh, a full biography at this point, but I think there are parts of his life in the 1970s that would interest me. Um, you know, the rivalry with Frazier, his fight with Foreman, um, and I think there's and space you- for that. I think we're going to continue to see more work on Muhammad Ali. I know of some other books uh, by prominent writers that are in the pipeline, and so I look forward to seeing what they have to say.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Randy Roberts and Johnny Smith about their book, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, published in 2016 by Basic Books. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and history. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.